0: This audio recording is of our regular service at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington, November 29th, 2015. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, if you open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, this is going to be the last sermon, I promise, in this chapter. And then we will go flying through Genesis uh, 3 through 11 um, over eight weeks or so. We're going to begin in Genesis uh, 2, verse 24. I'm just going to read a couple verses, and we're going to spend our time there. And maybe an interesting sermon for Thanksgiving weekend, but that's the way we roll. Wherever we hit, we hit. And so this is where we're at. Verse 24 of Genesis 2 says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. And we have been spending our time in Genesis 1 and 2 because these are the only two chapters in the Bible, minus perhaps the last chapter in the Bible, where we see a world that is free of sin. And our broken, sinful, falling world desperately needs the what we're calling the bedrock truth of Genesis 1 and 2. We need to spend more time there, understanding what God's design was and plan was for the world. And over the last several weeks, we've done just that. We have considered truths such as who is our creator that is there, what did he make, and how did he make it, and why did he make the world the way he did. And with great simplicity, I believe, and authority... The words in Genesis 1 and 2 are used by our Creator to confront some of the most controversial questions of our day. Questions that we perhaps didn't ever think would be asked. Questions like, what is life? And how is a man different than an animal? And what is work? And what's the purpose of it? What is a man? And what is a woman? It's helpful for us to remember passages like Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight. 28 should highlight, circle it. And in that passage, King Solomon warns his sons, says, do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient landmark, the fences, the boundaries that your fathers set. And as we look at our world and all the aspects of it, we basically see the result of men foolishly doing just that to God's boundaries and God's definitions. Moving them, adjusting them, sometimes just blowing them straight over. And Genesis, in a very um, real way, I believe, reveals the ugliness of our present world. And it does so, though, by revealing the beauty of God's original designs. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 does. Instead of just You know, flout condemning everything that's going on. What it does is reveal these beautiful designs God had for the world, for men, for women, for life, for work. And we look at our world and go, things aren't like that. Things are broken. Something's wrong. And we'll see that Genesis 3 explains exactly what that is and even gives us hope in the midst of that. But the ugliness of our world, I think, is no more clearly evident than in the brokenness of marriage and sexuality. And these two things are are uniquely connected to one another. Even though God did make sexuality for covenant marriage, our world has all but divorced the two. And this is a result of the fall. The fall separated God from men. Okay, Relationship broken. And as a result, we see all that God made separated from God. What began with the separation of God and men continued with separating sexuality from marriage. But even in that, it got worse. Eventually, uh, the pill and things like that separated sexuality from things like reproduction. And eventually, we see that in our world, pornography separated that same gift of sexuality from actually real people in relationship altogether. Today, what we see is people actually finding their identity in the gifts of God. And it's maybe silly as things like, well, I am vegan, or I am vegetarian, or I am this. But now we see sexuality becoming that identity, that what you do sexually is who you actually are as a person. And it defines the kind of community that you spend your time with. Gifts that were given to be enjoyed by men from God actually became gods themselves, and they became taskmasters. And we no longer enjoy, but we're actually enslaved to them. Now, of course, no one will admit that, but it doesn't take much of a survey of the culture to see that that's true. Men and women, <clears throat> young and old, are wrongly looking to these things to give us that which they were never designed to do. And this is, goes for all idolatry, but I would say that this particular one is one of the biggest idols we have. People are looking to sexuality to give them significance, to give them security, to give them satisfaction in ways that were, they were never designed to do. Today, people are encouraged to basically um, have intimacy with whoever they want. And more so, and connected with it, they are encouraged to marry whomever they want. One, engage with whoever you want, even if it's not a real person. And the other, marry whoever you want, no matter what kind of person that is. We are very broken. And I think as John Piper uh, aptly noted... After a recent Supreme Court decision, he said, the presence of sexual sin is not new, but the institutionalization of it is. We're at a different place in our generation. And I don't think we can underestimate the devastating impact of this kind of of immorality and sexual uh, uh, brokenness. We can't underestimate the influence it's had on our culture. This gift was made for marriages to protect and it's been used to destroy. And what happened was it was a very deliberate choice. The freeing of sex, I say freeing in quotes, from the prison of marriage has resulted in an enslaved world and our technology has fostered a culture really more besieged with this kind of perversion than any other generation in history. This kind of temptation is freely and instantly available anywhere, anytime, and always anonymous from something like this. This has access to more perversion than was probably ever available 50 years ago. That's scary. And if we think that's not having an effect on our world, and particularly our marriages, you're kidding yourself. Even if you're not personally involved in it, someone you know is, and it's affecting you. It affects our clothing. It affects our schools. It affects our television, films, music, media, even our coffee. I mean, that's how crazy it is. This kind of, of, of sin has bled into our coffee. And we kind of go, that. If it wasn't so sad, we would just say, that's just weird. We hear about sexuality. We read about it, see it, think about it, even have it legislated for us. And without doubt, you or someone you know has been affected or will be affected by what we're going to call the worship of this gift. Peter Kreeft, who's a Catholic apologist, said it this way, Sex is the effective religion of our culture. It is the effective religion of our culture. And this kind of worship is more than just kind of disturbing. It's more than just like, that makes me uncomfortable. But we have to understand what, what is really at stake here. And this is so important for the church <clears throat> because we almost like want to distance ourselves from it and go, well, that's no big deal. What people want to do in their private, like, whatever, I don't care, like, We understand what's at stake here. What's really being challenged here is the authority of God's Word to define what is right and what is wrong in the world. And the beauty of Genesis, I think more than many books in the Bible, if not all of them, equip us with some really bedrock, solid truths about who God is and what he created, and how it was supposed to function, so that we can stand in order to do two things, love God and love people. It's actually loving towards the world to stand on God's truth. I think it's important to consider the response of um, a woman named Rosario Butterfield. You may have heard of her. Um, A couple years ago, she was a um, staunch feminist uh, in a uh, homosexual relationship, teaching women's studies at an Ivy League school. So she's a very well-educated woman, very intelligent, very passionate about her community. And Jesus saved her. And Jesus transformed her. And Jesus freed her from... What was slavery, she would say. Now she's married to a pastor. It's an amazing story. But she talked about what's at stake with this particular issue. And shortly after her conversion, she had a female counselor. She was in counseling, and people were telling her different things. So she was well-known, well-respected, had, had many different people coming across her path. And a female counselor uh, she encountered... Told her she needed to soften her message about homosexuality. Now, remind you, she had been passionately uh, pro homosexuality and pro feminist, all these things that we would say are destructive, are against God's designs and God's desires. So, this counselor said, You need to to soften your message a little bit. And she asked her, I I think you need to state publicly that homosexual practice is, is not inherently wrong. And you just need to kind of limit that. In fact, what she said was, tell people that it's only your opinion that homosexual practices a sin. Now, many Christians are told that. We're told, oh, like, just, just settle down, just say, this is, it's your opinion, that's your interpretation. Same thing. This is what Rosario said. She said, I responded by letting her know that I'm not smart enough to have that opinion. That the position she holds is the inspired, or comes from the inspired and errant word of God that upholds it. She says, it comes to me from the historic Christian church through the pages of scripture and so down to me. And I told her, I believe I have the quote up here, I told her that changing my message would involve denying the plain meaning of Scripture, the testimony of the church, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and the gospel. Now, to the postmodern mind, which is the mind that basically says all truth is relative and changes with culture and opinion. She said to the postmodern mind, her request from this counselor seems reasonable enough. Just own the position as yours, your personal point of view. That's the postmodern mind. It's It's true for you, but not true for me. But she said, claiming something that is a universal truth to be a mere matter of personal preference is a lie by omission. She said, this is the Bible's message and apart from Christ, I am more condemned by it than the woman who made this request. What's at stake is the authority of God's word, the plain, simple reading of God's word. And the truth is this, anyone and everyone can read Genesis 1 and 2 and come away with the exact same conclusions, they just don't like them. And we have to be, I believe, in order to love God and love people willing to stand, especially when it's uncomfortable. To say that sexuality and marriage are meant to be together, just as God and men are meant to be together. Now, the question, though, that we have to ask is, did God really say that that sex outside of marriage, particularly the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, is sinful? Did he really ever say that? Which... Interestingly enough, it sounds just like Satan's question in Genesis chapter 3. When he comes to this temptation, did God really say? That's where it begins, and we'll explore that next week in Genesis 3. But our understanding of sexuality begins with Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. doesn't start in Leviticus. doesn't start in the letter to the Ephesians. It starts in Genesis Chapter 2. The Bible teaches that a marriage is a covenant relationship between a man and a woman designed and purposed by God, as all creation is, to glorify Him and to display in the most unique way His relationship with His people. It's not accidental that God uses marriage language to describe most often His relationship to His people and describe their sin in immorality kinds of ways, adultery. There's something more going on. Marriage isn't just marriage. Sexuality isn't just sexuality. Marriage has very specific characteristics and they all come from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. To start off with, marriage must be seen as complementarian or complement. What does that mean? This sets it up for what God's designs are. He established a design for marriage in Genesis, which we began in Genesis chapter 1. It said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. That's where it begins. And then it goes into Genesis 2 as he's made Adam, and he says, let me make a helper that is suitable for him or a complement to him. And then we see God creates, and the relationship that he draws up between these two created beings, is a relationship between a man and a woman. And these two, according to Genesis 24, would become one flesh after leaving mom and dad's house. What follows is that God designed marriage, this complementary relationship of a man and woman coming about, to teach us about himself, to be a display of his image, not just to make us complete. In the creation of, of the woman to help or complement the man, we see God providing this perfect complement of two people existing in unity. And this two people existing in unity is supposed to be. Both spiritual and emotionally things, but it's also most tangibly seen physically. Makes sense. A man and a woman come together in a way that only a man and a woman can. And this is supposed to, in spiritual sense, mirror the relationship of the persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this, this collective unity. Marriage is intended to teach us about the very nature of God. And it is presented as this earthly picture of who God is. And here's what you need to understand about all the attempts to redefine marriage. What really is at stake here? What's really going on? It's not about rights, it's not about happiness and freedoms. What it's really about is an attempt to redefine who God is and to remake him into the image of sinful men. Because if marriage is about God, if marriage is to display who God is and give us a picture in a very real way of the Trinity, changing that is in a very tangible way an effort to try and change God because I don't like him or his designs. Marriage is compliment, but it's not all it is. Marriage was intended to be this co-working unit. After the creation of man and woman, and we see in Genesis chapter 1, and we see it again in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see it again when Noah comes out of the ark, they were given a mission. They were given this cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. See, marriage was not just a definition. It had a mission. It had something to do. And there's all kinds of implications about how we engage the culture and how, this, how we are um, you know, subduing and having dominion and all these things, but let's just be a little more simple. Okay? I'm, I'm simple. Hopefully you're simple. I'm not a theologian. I just read Bible. They were supposed to be fruitful and multiply. They were supposed to reproduce. They were, in a very real way, supposed to subdue the culture and, and build the culture, by making babies. Now, humans are unique in the reproductive um, ways. What I mean is, animals reproduce, they make babies too. But humans, when they reproduce, because they are by nature different, they're different than animals in the sense that they were built to worship. They were built with the capacity to commune with God. They were given a spirit that God breathed into man in a way he did not breathe into animals. Sexuality in a covenant marriage is sacred because through it, God creates a new soul. And so when we talk about sexuality, it's not just for the purposes of of building a bigger population. It is for the greater purpose of creating God-centered families that function within a covenant relationship full of worshipers who represent God and display who God is to the world by how they live. That's the point. That's part of marriage is building families and doing that through making babies, not just making lots of babies, but worshipers, fostering a love for God. Through families that affect the world. We always talk about with our pastors as we bring them to eldership, the most important thing they can do is be godly husbands and dads. That's number one. As much as everyone's like, What's my mission from God? What's my call? Like, you know what? Start being a godly man. Be a godly husband. Be a godly dad. That will impact the world in a great way. That is a great work. That is a great mission. And then maybe God will call you to do something else, but that's not greater than being the godly man and husband and father, or godly woman, wife and mother that he has called you to be, that you know he's called you to be. That has an effect. Lastly, the third thing that marriage is we see in Genesis is that it's covenant, and probably most importantly, See, God wants us to experience closeness with people. I know that's a um, surprise for people who are antisocial, like me a little bit, like, like just leave me alone, i like to be by myself. But God said it's not good to be alone. And he wants us to be close with people. He wants us to be, uh, to, to know people, to be known. But God intended for individuals to experience a unique level of oneness with one other person. Now, not everyone will experience this. I believe most people will. There is a gift of singleness. I call it a gift, although many might not see it as a gift. But there's a unique level of oneness that God designed for one person to experience with another, and that was your spouse. And in a covenant relationship where you make promises before the Lord, you become identified with another individual in a way that is supernatural. Supernatural. The Bible says the two become one flesh. Now, certainly we could look at that in a physical way and make sense sexually, but it's more than that. It's becoming one with someone in a way that's intimate and powerful. The marriage relationship was designed by God to be that place where you are most intimately known. You are most intimately and deeply valued. You are most appreciated for who you are including the dirt, including the good that's awesome, the bad that's not, and the ugly that comes at times of circumstances. But in that relationship, you go, I love you. You're ugly, bad, whatever, but I'm not going to reject you because we're one. And to reject you is to reject myself. That's beautiful. And that's not possible outside covenant marriage. See, the intimacy of covenant marriage is like that by nature because it is supposed to mirror and would mirror the intimacy that Jesus has with us through the gospel. That Jesus looks at us and goes, man, I see some good stuff. I see a lot of bad. I see a lot of dirt, nasty, stinky. Come here. And he loves us. He loves us when he knows that stuff. Marriage is supposed to show that. Be a picture of that. And for those who are single and you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. If those who are married in here would live godly marriages like that, you would see the gospel preached to you constantly all the time. There's nothing more beautiful I think more satisfying and more nourishing, more captivating than when you have intellectual and emotional and spiritual, spiritual oneness. And if you're married, perhaps you've experienced that. I know I have with my brides. Like, wow, we just, as I get older, I feel like we become like the same person. Like, we just think alike. There used to be a time when she'd like give me looks, right? Be like, and I'm like, I don't know what you mean, right? If you see the inside out where they're like, what is she saying? What are the signs? I don't know what it is. But now it's like, I know what that means, (laughs) right? Because we're thinking the same. We're feeling the same. She's starting to like Star Wars a little bit. You know, she's finally coming around. She doesn't like cheese as much as I do, but she does like bacon, so that's good. But you you become this oneness. And then there's the physical oneness, and that's where the sexuality comes in. We talk about sex being made for... There's a physical oneness we have to, like, just in a practical way, say this is, this is full-on intimacy. Like, I'm going to be naked and unashamed, and as I get older, it's not going to be enjoyable probably, but hey, I'm going to be like this with you. And it's, it's beautiful, right? Because we love each other. We're bonded to each other. There's a oneness that is there. And that intimacy together is, is a kind of renewal of that oneness. It's a remembrance of that oneness. I like how Tim Keller wrote this, and I, I was reminded like how many pastors I, I, they get like a few thousand people in their church, and I feel like every pastor suddenly feels obligated to write a marriage book. I don't know what it is. They've all been married like 15 years, and like let me tell you all the truths about marriage. Like really, I don't want to listen to you because like there's so many books out there. I want to listen to the old guys that are like way wicked smarter than me, been married for way longer than I have, guys like Tim Keller, right? He came out the marriage book. It's kind of deep, but it's good. He's been married for like 40 years. They've been through suffering. They, like he's a, he's a wise teacher. Read that stuff. Don't read all the dorks writing their books about marriage that like, you know, they, 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 I'm sure they're fine, but there may be a lot of wasted of time in some of those. But Tim Keller wrote this. He said that, that sexual intimacy in marriage is is kind of a a covenant renewal ceremony in that you rekindle the heart and you renew the commitment that you've made. He goes on to say that sex is, is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you, and you must not use sex to say anything less. Now I realize I'm creating a picture of the ideal. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 does. And in that, we see the ugliness of the world. As we see the beauty of what God wants for us, we do see the ugliness. We do see that as much as Keller says we should not use sex to say anything less, the truth is we have made sexuality and marriage say much less. In Jewish thought, This kind of intimacy sealed the marriage covenant or betrayed it. It either enriched it or it destroyed it, depending on whether it was biblical or not, whether it was according to God's designs or not. And so, just so we understand, the biblical norm for sexuality is only two categories. One is abstinent singleness, and the other is heterosexual covenant marriage. All expression was to be reserved for one's spouse. And I have young people often ask me, what do you mean by abstinence? How far is too far? Where's the line? So I'll just make it really simple, and this is my gift to you. It's free. Single men and single women, they were to interact with one another like sisters and brothers. There you go. So instead of trying to create your little templates and your formulas, and this is too far, and I like this base, whatever, sisters and brothers. Would you do that with your sister? Would you do that with your brother? Ooh, gross! Exactly. Okay, simple and biblical. You're welcome. But all sexual expression was intended to be a gift, to be enjoyed, to be indulged in in covenant marriage, and any sexual expression outside of marriage is sinful. Now we have, unfortunately put categories on things to make some worse than others, but let's just create this big junk drawer of all sexual immorality outside of covenant marriage because it is all immoral outside of covenant marriage. Whether that is sex before marriage, we'll call fornication because that's what the Bible calls it. Might be an archaic word, but it's a good one. Sex during marriage, adultery to someone you're not married to, obviously, or sex with someone... Of the same sex, married or not, homosexuality. There you go. There's your categories. And there's certainly, I'm sure, other things we could add in there, but those are the basic things. And it all is in the same vein of outside of covenant marriage. And people will say, but, okay, that's, that's bad. But like sexual sin outside of marriage, I mean, that's not, that's not worse than other sin, right? Wrong. And I know people are like, oh, I know what's in your mind. You're thinking like, sin is sin is sin, right? No. Oh, but I've, but I've, that axiom has become like just codified in our minds. Like sin is sin is sin. You know why people say that? Well, they say sin is sin is sin. It's to minimize sin. It's not to maximize it. It's to go, well, that's not that. Bad. I mean, it, it's not. I mean, stealing from the cookie jar and like molesting that kid. Really? Now, it is the same in this sense. It's all lawless. You're a lawbreaker if you break one or the other. It doesn't matter. And in God's eyes, you're going to be condemned, and you're under God's wrath, and Jesus went to the cross for the cookie jar and for the sexual morality. But the Bible is pretty clear that, yes, all sin is lawless, but even the law itself reveals that there are sins that are greater than others that bring greater levels of destruction and have in them greater punishments in the law. And then you have Paul's letters. And Paul seems to indicate that the sinfulness of sexual sin is almost in an entirely different category of destruction. This explains why in every list, every list that Paul gives of deeds of the flesh or sins, he starts off with sexual morality. When he gives lists for elders and deacons, he starts off with purity and sexual morality. He make sure he's a husband of one wife, and they're faithful. This is always addressed first. God warned his people about sexual sin, I believe, because it is extra devastating, capable of destroying, as we've seen, the smallest of children, Most average of families, the fastest growing churches and their leaders, and even the government's greatest generals, senators. I mean, how many times do news things come out about men particularly being caught in sexual sin and destroying entire communities and families, letting their jobs surrendering them completely and giving everything up for this one idol that they could not give up. So why is it so sinful? So I just want to show you why I believe it is more destructive than others and one that we have to take take special attention to. First and foremost, we saw or we've seen that sexual morality is against God's word. What I mean is, God's word, God's ways, and God's rules are good. His rules and his laws were given as protections. And we simply throw them off as if he doesn't know what he's talking about. He says, "You do this and you will have blessings. You will have joy. You do this, and it's going to hurt. It's going to kill. We go, really? That's what the Garden of Eden is all about. Genesis 3. You're not really going to, God's word's not really true. This is one of the things where God is like so explicit. And he's not explicit about every sin. There's a lot of things that's subjective, like whether we can proceed by faith in doing things, whether you know whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Oh gosh, what is eating and drinking to like How do I drink to the glory of God? Like there's some gray in figuring that out, but not this. This is gonna hurt. Nah, I don't know if it's really gonna hurt. It's really simple. Genesis one or two. When creation functions the way God designed, it's good. And when creation rebels against the way God designed it, it's bad. It kills. kills relationships, kills jobs, kills families, kills churches, kills lots of things. But it gets worse. Sexual sin is also against God's will. And you go, well, oh, I know that. But did you know that God says that like, explicitly? There are very few times in Scripture where God like, speaks directly about his will. I mean, certainly there's times where he says, I desire this, I desire this. But here, he says, great passage for um, all of us to memorize, at least the reference. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, colon, which means, here we go, sanctification, right? We've been studying that Wednesday night. It's being set apart, being purified, special. I'm setting you apart. This is the will of God, a way to be set apart, a way to be aligned with what God's plan is ideal for you, that you abstain from sexual morality. Like he says it. This is my will that you abstain from this, that each one know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He doesn't explicitly say that about everything, but he says it here. Paul says that God's best for you, God's desire for you, is to abstain from sexual immorality no matter what form it takes and to exercise self-control. And he has to warn us about that because it's going to be very difficult. And we have to believe, this is where we have to get to a place as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, that God is not just some cosmic killjoy. And as you get older, you may understand and believe that because you've had enough experiences to prove that. As you're younger, it's more difficult. That God is just holding out on me, that He doesn't want me to have these and you're like, you don't really say that, but you might believe that, because you don't see God as a loving Father who has given you rules that are for your good. You see him as a boss who is mean in terms of a loving father who's saying, "I want you to enjoy this the way I made it, and I made it, so I know." Thirdly, sexual morality is actually against God's people. And for those who've experienced this kind of hurt, this is not a surprise to you. For those who have um, inflicted this kind of hurt, and you think, oh, inflicted? I wonder how many of us would be so apt to minimize our sexual past. And I say this about myself, and I was convicted, oh, this was about a year ago as I talked to my wife about this. Was I a sexual abuser? Those are like people that are in jail, right? But like, well, any of the sexual morality that I experienced even with girlfriends? I'm not talking like, like, oh, well, there's things you should have gone to jail for. I'm talking like just outside of God's plan. Does that make me an abuser? When you begin to think of it that way, you begin to think of it very differently. You understand sexual sin hurts others? I know we say that, we think that, but like it actually hurt. Paul warns us, same passage, right? Verse 6, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. See, here's what sexual sin does. It creates relationships based off wrong things. And even marriages are like this. It creates relationships based off what we expect to get and not what we intend to give what we expect to get and not what we intend to give. Imagine a marriage being built on a foundation where I'm coming in expecting to get some things instead of intending to give things. That's what our culture creates and we buy into it. See, without a covenant marriage, without a marriage based off promises before God, where I covenant with this woman and say, I'm going to love you no matter what. The only prerequisite for me to continue to be married to my wife is she has to keep breathing. she's alive. I didn't say I will love you as long as you don't get like 400 pounds because when that's like 401, we're done. Or bad burns. Or lose an arm. Or nice to me. Or love me. Or faithful to me. I didn't say any of those things. I said I'm going to love you until the day you die. That's easy to say now. Yeah, right. I pray to God it's easy to say when something comes, it challenges that. But with a, without a covenant marriage, you have a relationship based on performance, and what happens is men strive to feel affirmed, and women strive to feel loved and beautiful. Sexual sin causes us to basically use one another until something better comes along outside of covenant marriage. It causes us to hide from one another, causes us to abuse one another because... This kind of sin preaches the anti-gospel. What's the anti-gospel? The anti-Christ gospel set against the Christ gospel is this. See, the Christ-like love, the gospel of Christ, is love that sets the other up for their greatest good. And that requires self-denial, not self-indulgence. In other words, as much as all these youngsters and old people, because I've rebuked 60 year old single men for indulging in sexual morality. It is not loving. I don't care what you say, I love this person, blah, 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 blah. It is never, ever, ever, ever loving to lead someone into sin. Ever. I don't care what you feel, I don't care what you think. It is never loving to lead someone into sin. And it's the greatest condemnation on men, especially young men. But older men, we have a responsibility to teach that very thing. The most loving thing is to live like Christ and set someone up, especially that person we're in a relationship with, up for their greatest good, which is going to require self-denial. Then you know it's Christ-like love. Last couple. Sexual morality, in terms of why is it so sinful, it's against God's person, particularly the self in 1 Corinthians 6:18. Paul says something really interesting. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, which in the Greek is every other sin. I'm not a Greek expert, but I'm just going to go with the English here. Every other sin, so anything else a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. It's a different kind of sin. It's not more lawless, but it's more destructive. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul means, but it's clear that it's different. And this makes sense when we understand the basic God designed this act to be in a covenant marriage because it brings oneness, one flesh. And when you create a pseudo-marriage, that's what you're trying to do through sexual morality. You create a pseudo-marriage that's not going to last and therefore it tears you apart at the deepest level. You became a a fake one flesh, but you still were bonded. And then it's torn asunder. We may pretend it's harmless, but sexual sin wounds us at a very deep level, even the smallest of kinds. It's designed to bond us to our spouse like nothing else. And I didn't say this last service, but I'll say it now. I know, I can only speak to men because I know, but I know every girl that I ever did more than hold hands with. And when I'm in their presence, it feels weird. It's not supposed to be that way. There's a reason why it feels broken. Why I'm like "Mm, a little uncomfortable. And with my wife is there, who knows those things as well, it's extra awkward. When I'm with my wife and I wanted her boyfriend she had in high school, I mean, we have been married for 20 years, years now, but still feels weird because a bond's created whether you want it to be or not. And it's interesting, as many marriages I've counseled and sat with, first I've seen that bonds are very easily and quickly created, but they're not easily broken. And there's not a single person I've ever met who wished that their spouse would have you know had more sexual experiences before they got married. Not a one. Lastly, and more importantly, God says that it's actually sin against our Savior. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, I know that's not the verse that's up there. I don't think. No, it's not. It says, Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ. This is speaking to those in the church because we like to look at those were sexual morals. Those are the non believers. Wrong. So Paul speaks to the church, a very messed up church in Corinth. But let's not forget that this is the church of the first century, so sexual sin is not something new to our generation. It's not new to the church. He so said, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Speaking of the one flesh, he says it happens. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Paul, quoting Genesis. 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Oh, well, now we're talking about Jesus. So if you're a Christian, you claim to believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins. He rose from the dead to give you life. You believe that. You become one with Christ. Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Sexual sin does harm in your relationship with God because it brings Jesus into it. And Paul is speaking directly to Christians in the church who are indulging in the temple prostitutes that are ton of them in Corinth and it's very much countercultural to say this because our culture tells you that you know these kind of impulses and these behaviors you know they're legal they're natural they're private they're harmless the truth is that our actions are not harmless because they're much more than physical much more than emotional they're spiritual and they're never private they always involve Jesus and this is where we get the verse here, right? This is an awesome verse. Quoting Genesis 2. Man shall leave his father and mother, whole fast his wife, two shall become one flesh. There's a marriage. This mystery, what? Marriage? Yes, it's profound. I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. Your sexuality in marriage and your sexuality outside of marriage preaches something about Jesus. And some of us are preaching awesome sermons and some of us are preaching lies. That's what it comes down to. Marriage is really about a relationship with Jesus and that's why it's an affront and offensive and wrong to try and redefine and change it because you're trying to change our Savior. A Savior who says, I have the right to lead your life because it's mine and I bought it. There is hope, though, in all of this, and here's the hope. As dark as it is, as broken as it is, in that brokenness we see some hope. G.K. Chesterton, was a great apologist and writer, said, Everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Everyone who indulges in sexual immorality is looking for God is looking for the significance that only God can bring, the acceptance that only God can bring, the security that only God can bring, the satisfaction that only God can bring. It should be no surprise to us that our culture, in trying to redefine marriage, uses the perversion of sexuality to do so. The abuse of sexuality and the rebellion against biblical marriage is the boldest act of man's rebellion, but it's the loudest cry for a savior there is. So we have hope and we have understanding for how we are to combat this. And as much as it's important to have filters and and to fight temptation in truth, it's not an external problem. It's an internal one. And I have listened to a couple things from that woman I quoted, Rosario Butterfield, and she reminded me of something that was very important, something we should never forget, And she said it this way, and I'll just kind of paraphrase what she said. She says, don't forget that the worst sin in someone's life is never, ever sexual morality. The worst sin in their life is never fornication. It's never adultery. It's never homosexuality. The worst sin in anyone's life is always unbelief. It's unbelief. For those who have given themselves over to this God... Their problem is not they don't have enough filters they have too much access or they are just flawed. Like the problem is at a heart level that they are not trusting in Jesus Christ as the Creator as Lord and Savior. And yes, we must warn people about sexual morality and running from it because in truth, I think it is very much running after us. But the separation of sexuality from marriage is not an external problem, it's an internal one. And our bad hearts... Have become separated from a good God, and that's made everything bad. And the solution is to trust Jesus, who says in the book of Revelation 21:5, I've come to make all things new. I've come to restore all things. The culture is going to argue and tell us that it's your body, it's your life, you're free to do what you want when you want to. But the cross shows us the very opposite. Even though the culture will say, hey, indulging your freedom, that's where joy is. The cross tells us that joy comes from actually giving up that kind of freedom in order to enjoy the fullness of God. We're not giving up freedom to enjoy less. We're laying down freedoms as Christ laid down so many to experience the joy and the fullness that God has for us. Jesus shows us that true love is about selfless giving and not selfish taking. And he allowed on the cross men to take life from his body so that we would give him our lives through our bodies. Romans 12.1 tells us that our worship is being living sacrifices, that by what we do, all that we do, we honor God. Our job is to call people to Christ, to give them a picture of hope and joy and forgiveness and promise of restoration. And it's for us to confess our own sin, and all of us to present our bodies to its owner. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Don't settle for the culture's perverted, broken, unfulfilling version of sex and marriage. It falls well short of what God wants for His children. And don't do this. Don't allow your sinful mistakes, our sinful mistakes, or the sinful abuses of someone against you, which those are very real and very present here. Do not allow sin to govern how you view God's gifts of sexuality and marriage. Live in the cleansing and the forgiveness of the cross and the newness of life and the resurrection when you entrust yourself to jesus he makes all things new and it's never ever ever too late to return to your owner who shed his blood to remove the guilt of your sin and to cleanse you of the shame of what has been done to you and our lives and our bodies will then be freely owned by jesus so that we can honor Him and we can enjoy Him by living the way God designed us to. My prayer is that as you come to the table, for those who have said, Jesus died in my place. Jesus died for the sins I've committed and He died to remove the shame of the sins that have been committed against me. And He rose from the dead to give me new life. I pray that you will come to the table and you will confess that and you will believe that. There are many in here that have experienced their own selfish decisions and decisions that have been made against them. I pray you will experience the new life that Jesus can give you. But I also, before we come to the table, would ask for you to pray for those whom you love, whom you know are indulging in these kinds of things and, and pursuing these kinds of things, and you've been pounding on them about their behavior. I'll remind you that behavior is not the major problem. It's the heart, and that you will pray that they will believe, that they'll pray that they will find their true identity, their true significance, and their satisfaction security in the love, the unfailing love of Jesus that will change them and transform them from the inside out. Let's pray.